So for those of you who don't know me, well, you know, my, you know I'm Lisa Jans now, so hi. <laughs> um, I grew up in Nova Scotia. Uh, over the years, I've lived in Montreal, in Arizona, and in California. Um, in 2015, my family moved here to Peterborough from California, and I've been coming to the parish since about 2016, 2017. So I'm a professor now at the University of Toronto in the Department of Anthropology. And my research is in archaeology. So if you don't know what archaeology is, archaeology is, in its simplest form, the scientific study of material remains related to human activity in the past. So we're often looking at things like stone tools, animal bones, and pottery from ancient human settlements. So basically, I analyze really, really ancient garbage to learn about how people lived in the world in the past. So first, um, I want to say that really I've traditionally shied away from talking too much about my work when I'm at church. Uh, this is largely because the work I do is heavily informed by the science of evolution. The work that I do is entirely predicated on the assumption that the Earth, as it is today, evolved over four billion years and that fully modern humans evolved about 200,000 years ago, having diverged four million years ago from a shared ancestor with chimpanzees. So this is not something that's necessarily comfortable to a lot of people in the church community. I know there are many different ways of seeing the world within the church community. And I want to be clear with everyone that it's not my intent to try and change how people believe about the creation of the world but rather just to present a completely honest picture of how my own beliefs are seated in my Christian faith. Most of the research I do is focused on Mongolia. I think you, you have a picture up there. Um, I'm heading there in two weeks. Um, Mongolia is a big but not very well-known country. It's sandwiched between two better-known countries, uh, Russia, so Siberian Russia, and China. It's the homeland of Genghis Khan and a vast country with about 2 million people and 25 million herd animals. So most of the people in the countryside are pastoralists, which means they make a living from keeping herd animals like horses, cattle, sheep, goats, and camels. Now I've been working in Mongolia and other parts of East Asia for over 20 years. And since 2013, uh, with Mongolian researchers, I've been collaboratively running and organizing archaeological expeditions in Far Eastern Mongolia. So every summer I spend one or two months in the field. Um, with my Mongolian collaborators, I co-direct excavations of ancient human settlements and sometimes burials. Uh, these settlements date from between 35,000 years ago to up to 2,000 years ago and they include some of the first fully modern humans to arrive in East Asia. We look at their stone tools um, and animal bones that they left behind after their meals. Um, I study ancient hunter-gatherers, um, especially from about 8,000 years ago, as well as the earliest pastoralists, so the first herders that came to Mongolia. These are the cultural ancestors of modern Mongols. The work that we do is scientifically based in the social and natural sciences, so I work collaboratively with other researchers using ecology, biology, chemistry, geology, 
and genomics in order to understand the past. Now, it's important to point out that my scientific thinking about the world, including faith, does not come entirely from my education and vocation as a scientist. I was raised in a house where questioning and, discuss and discussing were encouraged and welcomed. Some Sundays as a young child, I would sit in adult Sunday school and admire how my father uh, challenged everyone's interpretations of the scriptures, often while my mom was gritting her teeth. <laughs> and I dreamed expectantly of the time when I would be able to join big kids Sunday school so that I could do the same. The Sunday school teachers weren't as impressed with me joining <laughs> big kids Sunday school as I was. Um, and at a table, at a dinner table, where whoever talked the loudest was the one that was heard, and where the most common expression of intellectual authority was basically attired, because I told you so, Lisa. Perhaps the most important thing that I learned um, for my life as both a Christian and as a scientist was that you should always explore the facts for yourself, because you may come to different conclusions than everybody else. Now, this attitude has not always made me popular in school or in university, <laughs> nor has it always led me down a path of truth. But it has helped me to reconcile the worldview in which I that I was raised in with the one in which I was educated. So growing up in a conservative evangelical church, one view of the world underlay most of our teaching, right? I think we're all familiar with it. God created the world in six days. Certain behaviors were sins that caused God to be sad and disappointed in us. If we did not give our lives to Jesus by praying a very specific sinner's prayer, we would go to hell when we died. And we should always ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? So I didn't want to be a Pharisee or a Sadducee because they're well known to be unfair and sad, respectively, you don't want to be that. While my parents were much more liberal than most parents, evolution was, it really was rarely a topic of conversation and it was much later that I, I had discussions about it with my parents. Um, it wasn't avoided, it just didn't come up. I was warned by the church that when I went to university, they would try and convince me that evolution was real that humans evolved from apes, and I should always be on my guard about that. So I used to play out in my head exactly how I would challenge that teaching if it was ever given to me, how I would argue for the worldview of my church upbringing. But it was a really long time before I sat in that classroom, and many things in my life had changed. When I was 16, I started dating a boy from the reservation and hanging out with his townie friends who were all skaters. Uh, this wasn't the modern, clean, upper middle class kind. These were real skaters with dyed hair, piercings, rough language, and too many acid trips in grade 10. This is a shout out to my friend Eric. Whether my parents trusted me or they simply were too tired of parenting, because I was the youngest, we usually, at some point your parents are tired of parenting. Um, they were, maybe were too tired to be worried about it but they were supportive. More likely, it, it may be because these friends didn't drink, and I had gotten into some trouble with that the year before, and so they were kind of relieved, actually, for me to be hanging out with these kids. Truthfully, my boyfriend and his group of friends changed my life in really profound ways, in ways that I, are still touching me today. 
all of them positive. For the first time, I felt loved, protected, and accepted, even liked for both my eccentricities and my innocences. Around that same time, I started to hear and observe the way that my friends were treated and talked about by people who were supposed to be servants of God. I started to see how being a Christian in that world meant conforming to a particular set of social norms that seemed to have little to do with Jesus, even though he had long hair in all the pictures, just like my friend Eric, and a lot to do with excluding people who were different. I started feeling like I didn't belong and mostly dropped out of church for the next decade. Or I would come late, sit in the back, and leave before anyone could talk to me. Not that they usually tried. But I never dropped away from God. I've been reading the Bible since I could read, and speaking to God every night before bed has been a ritual that I remember doing even as a toddler. I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was four. <laughs> After I left the church, my understanding of theology was mostly based on my own reading of the Bible. When I was 19, I decided to go to university to study anthropology. The two required courses in the first year were focused on the biological and cultural evolution of humans. So 14 weeks tracing the journey, or I guess two courses, so 28 weeks, tracing the journey from proto-chimpanzees in Africa to Middle Eastern farmers. There remained a lingering sense that I might have to protest. Not an unfamiliar feeling for me, of course. But I sat and carefully listened. And the truth was that it all made much more sense than most of what had been presented to me in church. And it was clear that there was ample evidence to support these teachings. So rather than arguing that the devil had planted fossils to trick us into believing in evolution, I reasoned that if God is truth, then God must be in this too. And that filled me with awe to think about how great God's plan for the world was, that his creation could span four billion years and still be evolving, the way that all species were formed from one single-celled organism meant that every single living thing on Earth was related to one another, and not just to one another, but to the entire universe. I learned that the entire planet and beyond contained lives that had shaped each other and fit perfectly together. And that all of our collective and individual strengths and weaknesses actually worked in tandem to create an ever-growing, ever-changing planet and universe that at each moment each organism was experiencing things that allowed them to meet the challenges of the future and pass on these learnings to their offspring. Not so that the world can keep developing or getting better per se, but simply so that we can stay in step with one another, so we can continue to fit together. That the strengths and weaknesses of our fellow plants and animals will always fit with one another, and that these strengths and weaknesses create a cohesive whole a perfection that is filled by and formed by flaws. As we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 39 to 41, all flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. 
But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and stars differ from star and splendor. When Aaron suggested that I speak, he suggested that I talk about how my life as a scientist informs my theology. But I'd like to go a step beyond that to say that my life as a Christian also deeply informs my science. I wasn't really sure how to begin that conversation until I heard Aaron talking about religion is a blanket put over mystery to give it shape. Or religion is a blanket we put over God to give it shape. It struck me that I could say similarly of my quest for knowledge, that knowledge is a blanket to understanding the shape of the world. And it is only by understanding the world that I feel I can know God. As a Christian that is also a scientist, I've always compared what I've discovered about the world to what I read in the Bible. One of my deepest passions is to understand that world because I know that the shape of God is underneath all knowledge. Each person who longs to understand the world chooses a different way to accomplish this. For me, it is through a deep time understanding of the earth and the role of humans in that world. Occasionally, I'm reluctant to say that I'm an archaeologist because the importance of the knowledge archaeologists have to tell people about the worlds often lost in Hollywood images like Indiana Jones or Lara Croft or equally in Christian circles with heretical beliefs in a too ancient world. The truth is that a well-educated archeologist is in a position, if we can figure out how to talk to people who aren't academics, to tell you things about the trajectory of human life and human society that you may never have imagined. I was trained to understand how humans evolved from other apes over four million years within the context of continuously changing animal life and climate. I know enough about history to explain how great civilizations have risen and fallen over the past 4,000 years and made some good guesses about why. As a human paleoecologist, I can explain how the world we live in, including what we see as a totally wild landscape, are actually largely the product of coevolution between humans and plants and animals. And I can explain why farming developed in some places and not in others. Of course, since I spend all my time learning these kinds of things, there's a lot of things that I have no idea about, and I don't want to embarrass myself by getting into that. What I've learned from these things has formed my belief about the shape of God. I believe that God created our world and that everything in it tells something of him. Each of the things that I believe to be fundamental truths are supported by the natural world and by the Bible. And two of these I want to talk about in more detail. The first is love. For many types of animals, love is the beginning of new life and what helps the community survive and thrive. When I see mother animals in a field with their babies, I see the depth of love that God has placed in the world. When I see how deeply intertwined are sex and the nurturing of children, how hormones, memory, and sexual desire outside of seasonal mating in humans have evolved to allow monogamy, not just in humans, but also in wolves and parrots. It's incredible to me how deeply placed love is in the world that God created. 
And when you see how social animals like bees put aside their own safety to help those in their communities, you can see the evolution of what we think of as love in humans. When we see the careful burial of a nine-year-old Neanderthal child from 300,000 years ago, or the loving burial of disabled individuals who were clearly cared for throughout their lives despite being barely mobile, we see how God has filled his world with love and made humans one species, but not the only one, profoundly capable of expressing caring and love. In fact, the more intelligent an animal is, the more we see behavior that can be described as loving. And though the importance of love through caring is expressed throughout the Bible, perhaps no deeper expression of caring for others and love is expressed than in the example of a father sacrificing the life of his only child for the enlightenment of humankind. Which brings me to the second, death and violence. This is a harder one for people to accept. And I believe that God made a world that is filled with death and violence. But I do not believe that it was accidental. God takes life and he gives life and his wisdom is beyond understanding. My knowledge of the world tells me that life is not possible and that the world cannot be sustained without death. Death is required for the whole community to thrive just as we thin and weed plants. So God does his work in us. And when we stop him from his work, we all suffer through famine, war, and poverty. Death is necessary in order for life to continue. When an animal does not want to die, death is violent. And when humans are without love, this imbalance has the potential to create violence among us. Our perception of violence is shaped by our worldview, not God's. God shuts off opportunities to create better ones, not necessarily better for us, but for the world. God is endless and timeless, and his patterns are meaningful beyond what we have the ability or right to judge. But we are not God, and he doesn't give us permission to do the work of violence. He's made us as creatures whose intelligence, capacity for empathy, and desire for healing allow us to counter the violence of his love, of his, the violence of his creation with love. For that reason, I see love and violence as deeply interwoven. Actions of love can prevent violence, and the reality of violence makes love even more beautiful because of its ability to heal. Just as violence reverberates through the generations, so too does love. Moreover, death is deeply beautiful because of the life that comes from death. Even if we're speaking in a completely literal way, the process of death and decomposition are fundamental for the birth of new planets and animals, and for the cycling of nutrients, minerals, and energy through Earth's biosphere. The devastating consequences of stopping death can be seen in the massive overpopulation of our planet, including both the environmental disasters resulting from famines and wars, that have resulted from the human desire not just to heal, but to avoid death, sometimes through violence. Unlike any other organisms on the planet, humans have free will, the ability to act outside their instincts. I believe that God gave us this power not to harm, which is what animals do to one another through their instincts, but the freedom to not harm, or even the power to heal. Why? 
Jewish tradition explained the fall of man or the emergence of free will as the outcome of misbehavior. Scientists tend to assume it to be the product of a random mutation that proved to be beneficial under evolutionary pressures. But for me, neither of these things accord with what we know about God. God is love, and I believe that he could only have done this out of love. I believe that human free will was created to bring healing to God's world. Only through imperfection could there be perfection. Only through grief can we find compassion. And only through understanding violence can we learn not to be violent. Only through our ability to choose love over harm can we be created in God's image. But I think that the really hard thing is that it's sometimes, it's sometimes very hard to know if the actions that we take are loving. God's world uses both life and death, healing and violence. But we're called to be the mitigators of death and violence. Personal choices are not so easy, partially because there's no clear argument on what acting lovingly even means. We can ask ourselves, do my actions propagate more love in the long term? Or do they propagate more long-term suffering? How can we possibly know the answer to this? I believe that the answer to this is that only through knowledge can we understand what actions are loving and what actions will result in more violence. And the path of knowledge can mean different things to different people. Each of us, as a different part of the body of Christ, has different interests and skills and desires different types of knowledge. I desire knowledge about the deep time role of humans in the natural world. Some people desire knowledge of relationships between people and how to be present in the lives of others. I guess I should probably desire knowledge of both of those things. <laughs> Some people desire knowledge of art and beauty. Others, the knowledge of creating community or knowledge of teaching children. Only by sharing these different perspectives can we truly fulfill God's desire for the world to create a kingdom on earth. I think that's critical. Only by sharing these different perspectives can we truly fulfill God's desire for the world to create a kingdom of God on earth. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 28, it said, the body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we are all given the one spirit to drink. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We need to seek and accept one another's knowledge in order to be whole. And we also need to accept and value our own knowledge, whether it comes from reading, observing, or lived experience. All of these are valid knowledge. Each one of us is an expert in something, regardless of what others believe about us. We know deep down what our knowledge is. Maybe we learned it through hard life lessons, Maybe something we learned in school that we actually remembered because it rang true in our lives. Perhaps it is our own instincts that have proven right over and over again. Whatever the case, these knowledges, our own or others, are sacred. 
They are why God created humankind as he did, to live in community that's above violence and by bringing knowledge to one another and the world around us. Moreover, God's example of forethought, in my mind, creating the world in four billion years rather than six days, sets a prime example for the importance of long-term thinking, the call to think beyond what we want or are capable of creating this week or even in 20 years, but rather to consider what we are creating within our communities for our collective children and future generations. God's example begs us not to turn aside knowledge to serve our animal instincts. In short, this is what being a scientist an anthropologist of deep time, has taught me about being a Christian. While science can create certain types of knowledge and this can deepen our understanding of the world and even of God, but it can also become just another source of violence, consuming facts to support unjust ends. Over the past 25 years, it has been my love of God and my desire to learn of him from both the Bible and from his most beautiful creation the global ecosystem that has brought me the deepest desire to act with compassion and some guidance in what this might look like. It has been both my faith in God and my learned knowledge of the world that brought me healing through deep loss. Loss based in the cycle of life and death or of watching the essence of a loved one being destroyed by addiction and self-loathing or the destruction of family through decisions that were beyond my control, and through many struggles against the numbing fear of failure in both my career and as a parent. These experiences have reinforced my belief that increasing our knowledge is fundamental to weathering the storm and doing the rightest thing, the thing that most expresses God's love for this world. When we choose to be ignorant rather than to seek knowledge, both increasing our own and accepting that of others, we often unknowingly do or reinforce violence. I believe this is what Paul meant when he urged the Romans, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Romans 12, 2. At the same time, as a, unity, as a university professor, I will never argue, or maybe I should say, even as a university professor, I will never argue that gaining knowledge is about going to university. Knowledge means different things to different people, and many types of knowledge can lead to wisdom. Rather, I urge you, each of you, to find your own passion for learning, and in this way, to put on the armor of God to be a force of love in the world.